Hey friend, I am so excited you're here today. You are going to get to listen in on a very juicy conversation with two of my favorite colleagues. Now, these are two folks that I meet regularly with, and we just get together over coffee and like to talk about food and people's relationships with food and ask each other questions. We have these really stimulating conversations. And the conversation you're going to be sitting in on today is one that's been brewing for the last couple of years. It is something that I think is really hard for us to navigate in today's world. The idea and concept of intuitive eating came about several years ago, and it has completely revolutionized and really pushed back against the diet culture world. And it's been beautiful and amazing. And I also think it has turned into the Prince Charming of our culture. And I see a lot of folks behind the scenes struggle with it and feel like they're failing at it and feel like it's really far away. And then something is wrong with them now when they they struggle to accept their body or to not want to lose weight or to want to eat healthier. It gets really confusing. And, and honestly, conversations like this is what sparked the entire empowered eating model. So in the empowered eating method, which is my signature program, we break out elements of intuitive eating, which is tapping into your body's um, intuitive eating calls it your interoceptive awareness. And I call it biofeedback just because I have more of like a, a science focused brain. Like I want to know what is my body actually saying about this food? What's my blood sugar doing? What does my lab work say? What's my poop doing? What's my mineral status? All of these things. You know, what is my body's biofeedback? Then we overlap that with nutrition knowledge. And that component is incorporated into intuitive eating. The piece that's not is your value system. And intuitive eating, I think, sets the values. And and they should. Like, we needed a period where we pulled away from the diet culture world and the hyperfixation on body image and losing weight. But now, you know, we have this whole population of folks that aren't quite sure what to do now and feeling like they want to eat intentionally, but is it wrong if I'm not eating intuitively? So there's a lot to navigate here and a lot to unpack. And this is where I think pulling in your values as the compass, pulling in your values as the goal direction as the setting of your standards that's where we can pull that in and adjust our sales for the latter two for the biofeedback and the nutrition knowledge that we're trying to pull into our journey so this is a conversation that ooh, I mean see I could rant on and on about it but I have broken it actually out into two parts because the conversation was so long so in the first part today you're going to hear us talk about some of the pros of intuitive eating and where it's really helpful and some signs that that is the path you should take. And then we'll jump into some of the struggles of intuitive eating and where if you struggle with that, letting you know you aren't alone and what you can do instead. So my hope is this is a discussion that stimulates some thought in your brain and stirs up some questions, but also gives you some permission to grab hold of your next steps in your empowered eating journey and feel empowered that you have autonomy to decide what you want to do next and how you want to take care of your body. All right. I hope you enjoy my friend. 
Hey, I am Jess, and I'm obsessed with all things nutrition, science, and helping you navigate this information while maintaining a deep sense of peace and empowerment in your body. I'm a registered dietitian who started out with an eating disorder and then fell in love with learning about how God intricately designed our bodies to be resilient and so much more than superficially beautiful. I am now a mama who loves to be healthy, not because of how it makes me look, but because of how it has transformed the energy I can give to my family, my friends, and you. On this show, we hit on real talk around the latest nutrition science and body image resiliency, all while balancing it between grit and grace. Think of this as your weekly audio coffee to encourage your empowered eating journey. This is the Fuel Her Awesome podcast. Well, I am so excited you guys are here today. Erica and Chris, thank you so much for, one, doing the research to have this conversation, two, being open to it. But before we dive into this, tell me just a little bit about yourself so people know um, your background and where you're coming from today. Yeah, thanks uh, for having us. I'm Erica Castleberry, a licensed psychologist. I've been in private practice for about 10 years. Before that, I did a postdoc Uh, experience at the Transformation Center, which is an IOP for eating disorders. For those that don't know, IOP means intensive outpatient program. I wasn't planning to go into eating disorders, but once I I did my training there, I realized that I love it, and it's a population that really just needs a lot of service. Um, So about 60% of my clinical work now is eating disorders, and I really found myself just diving into all of this research on intuitive eating and what's what are the best approaches and it's been a fascinating journey. Oh, it's so cool to have you here. And we you've actually been on the show before. I have. Yes, we talked about body image and you know, that was one of the number one downloaded episodes for almost a year. That's fantastic. I know, isn't that cool? <laughs> well, I'm glad to have you back. Thanks for being here. And Chris, why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Christopher Geider. It's um, a delight to be here. Thanks so much for having us on the show. Um, I'm kind of a latecomer to the mental health profession. I started in academia as a university professor. Um, I did a PhD in English literature. And then I also worked in data research after that and have recently become a licensed mental health counselor. And I focus a lot on obsessive compulsive disorder and anxiety. So I know I've observed also a lot of overlap with that, with body image issues and people in, in recovery from eating disorders. and. In my collaborations with Erica, that's become like a big point of focus for us. So really happy to be here and talk about that some. Well, I'm super excited to have this conversation with you guys today. Thank you so much for being here. We are going to be breaking down how people might be eating intuitively or impulsively. And I love this conversation. It's one I think a lot of people struggle with. They want to, the intuitive eating has become like the Prince Charming of the diet culture world or the anti-diet culture world. It has been something that people want to be able to do, yet in my office, I see it's something people really struggle with and I don't think it's because anything's wrong with them. I actually think there might be some flaws in how it's communicated. So I'm excited to have this discussion. I'm excited to unpack intuitive eating, talk about some of the really powerful components and some of the potentially blindsiding or misleading components. So before we dive in today, let's assume not everybody understands what intuitive eating is. So let's just do like a general bird's eye view of what is intuitive eating. Intuitive eating is an approach to eating. It's not a diet. It's not a diet plan, right? It tries to get rid of that kind of stuff. It tries to get rid of rules. So the emphasis is placed on giving yourself permission to eat, to get rid of guilt and shame for eating, um, and to focus on your health, 
uh, over aesthetics, certainly, and to really tap into and respect your body's hunger cues and satiety cues. And nutrition's really kind of, it's in the book, right? But it's called gentle nutrition and it's toward the end. So this is really about tap into your own intuition and your own wisdom and eat from there without any external rules or structure. Yes, yeah, the gentle nutrition piece is step 10 in the process. And I think it's one of the steps that is actually missed in more of like the general social media conversation. And that's the piece where we actually bring in like the nutrition science and understanding, you know, how food interacts with your body and your blood sugar. I mean, basically my job, right? (laughs) And so, yeah, I think that's a great, great overview. Anything you want to add, Chris? No, I think just to emphasize that point that with intuitive eating, it really is putting the focus on our internal perception of hunger and fullness and letting that guide our food choices rather than turning to external authorities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so good. Oh, to add um, pleasure, right? There's an emphasis on eat the things that you like. There's a concept in intuitive eating of give yourself unconditional permission to eat. And it's like, eat the things that you want to eat as much as you want to eat. And that sounds really enticing and maybe concerning for some people. Yeah. Yeah. And as someone who's struggled with an eating disorder, and I'm sure you guys see this in your office, that can be something that sounds very you know, exciting, really far away, something right. that may never actually be able, I may never actually be able to accomplish and also scary. I'm glad you said that because what if I do eat everything for pleasure, then I'm going to eat everything. So, okay. So we're going to talk about some of those scary parts, right? And unpack how we might, um, circumvent some of the problems it could bring about. But before we do, let's talk about the powerful components of intuitive eating, because there are definitely some incredibly strong elements of intuitive eating that provide healing for people. It provides a way out of disordered eating, out of diet culture mentality, obsession with weight loss. So we definitely want to hit on those. So Mm -hmm. let's start with some of the powerful parts of intuitive eating. I think when people are able to do it well, I think that they're not obsessing about food anymore. They're not struggling with it. It comes more easily. They don't have guilt about eating. And I think that there is some good evidence that once you take away this idea of a forbidden food, you, you could learn to regulate your use of it. Like, so, you know, now a person might say, now I can just eat a piece of cake and I don't eat the entire cake. So there's this idea in the intuitive eating book and, and in that approach that if, if people have been taught they can't have certain things, that that becomes a focus of obsession. And then when, if, they, if they let down their resolve at all, as they inevitably will, then they're going to overeat. And so I think this approach is really meant to help people kind of become stabilized in their relationship to food. And I do think that is one of the things that it can do well. Absolutely. Yeah, I think um, one of the probably most liberating aspects uh, for people doing intuitive eating is feeling like you finally don't have to look at all of the rules that you've been using from external sources that have often not led to the desired outcome and that have created a lot of guilt and a sense of failure. You can kind of put that aside and focus purely on kind of what you're feeling you want to do and then trusting that feeling and kind of encouraging you to put um, your own internal cues in the driving seat of your eating. And I think that really is, you know, a part of it that benefits a lot of people. Absolutely. Well, yeah, when you've told yourself you can't eat cookies or bagels for so long, 
it makes sense that you become increasingly afraid of being around cookies and bagels and then you know they hold a lot of power so this idea of letting that go and learning how to eat for pleasure and valuing eating for fun I call it fun foods right that's an incredibly um, healing experience that can come from this model and there is actually a, a lot of research behind it. Chris, maybe you, I don't know if you want to speak to this first or do you want me to go first. Like what happens when people are trying to diet all of the time? What yeah, and I think intuitive eating, they really focus on that, that there's kind of a paradox where as soon as you nominate a food or a food group as something that's forbidden to you, it sort of simultaneously increases the allure or your desire <laughs> for that food. And so we can already see like the vicious cycle that gets established where you say, okay, I'm forbidding this particular food. And then you have an almost uncontrollable urge to eat that food and probably overindulge in that food. And I think intuitive eating is about getting people out of that cycle. Yeah. Yeah. I call it the little, the big red button syndrome. And I see this with my kids, right? Like if I say, don't push that red button, it's like, that's all they want to do. That's all they want to do. Their finger gets closer and closer and we don't outgrow that. Right. And so when we think of a food, we don't, we can't have, we want it more. Well, and in addition to what Chris said, I think I would just add that when people are trying to diet in the sense of losing weight, we know that that tends to backfire as well, that that process is really precarious and that 80% of people will regain half of what they lost within a year. And if you look out further to five years, most people have regained most of the weight that they lost and often people go beyond that too, they've gained more. And so you can get into this really bad pattern. Um, the book calls it weight cycling, right? Mm -hmm. Where you're losing weight and then gaining that back and plus maybe then some and kind of really digging an ever deep hole for yourself. And I think that that is somewhat at least supported by the research. Absolutely. Well, and I think that's one of the major things about intuitive eating that I like is that it shifts focus from weight to health. And that's where the big movement of anti-diet culture comes in and something I really stand behind when it comes to intuitive eating is putting down the weight as the focus and shifting it to that like internal bio, what I call biofeedback. Like what does your body say about the foods you eat and how does your, your body respond to how you're taking care of it? And I think that's a really powerful component where we step away from the scale because we know that doesn't work, right? Like you said, 80%, that's a crazy high statistic. And we move to health instead. Yeah, I think that's really powerful because we're shifting the focus from kind of almost linking your self-worth or what you define as success to a number on a scale to really more towards a body acceptance approach. Mm -hmm. And that certainly is something intuitive eating wants to encourage and, and nurture. Yeah, and the body size acceptance is big in the intuitive eating culture. And we've talked about this before, like the genetic limitations that we all have. I mean, my example, like my, I have no hips, none. It's just how my body was created. And so for me to try to diet my way into having bigger hips is never going to work. And I think our world for a long time told us that we could diet our body into being a certain shape or size. Correct. And intuitive eating has freed us from that. And it's encouraged us to accept that our body is genetically set up to be a certain way and getting comfortable with that is the best way to live a happy, comfortable life in your body. Right, people that do intuitive eating well have lower stress. Mm -hmm. they, um, they sometimes even have improved other medical markers. Some, some studies have shown like maybe lower LDL cholesterol. So definitely mm -hmm. people that can do this well, and I am saying that on purpose, that can do it well, right. um, they're gonna have a lot of benefits from it. They're gonna have a stable weight. They're not gonna be obsessing about food. They're gonna feel 
more sane and, and more happy, I think. Absolutely. Well, and they'll have better body image as and well. And have better body mm-hmm. image, right. One of the other components that I'm a big advocate of when it comes to intuitive eating is the introduction of the hunger and satiety scale. And I love this one as a dietitian because when you come from a background of eating based on food rules, calorie numbers, like I'm from the Cosmopolitan magazine generation that told me to eat 1,500 calories in a day. I know. That's so little. So little. (laughs) And when we move away from that and get invited to listen to hunger and even define hunger, that is an incredibly liberating experience. What have you guys noticed? Yeah, I think um, one of the huge benefits of intuitive eating is that it kind of reconnects us to our bodies. And maybe for some people, it's the first time, as as you pointed out, that they've actually looked inward to see what they want to eat, if they want to eat, rather than trying to consult some list of rules or some external authority. So of course that begins with just asking yourself, do I feel hungry? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and if so, indulging that. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a radical concept, right? Am I hungry and, and eating for that? I think one of the harder things for people is to get rid of the idea of breakfast, lunch, and dinner, because even a time schedule, I I think people with doing intuitive eating, if they're doing it really well, are not necessarily eating on a time schedule of like breakfast has to be at this time, lunch at this time. And so really throwing out all of those external variables um, and, and just eating when you know you're really hungry with what you need and honoring that in your body. It's funny you say that because I have so many clients that do say something to the effect of, wow, go figure, eat when you're hungry. You know, like it's this novel yeah. concept. But in our culture, we really have lost the ability to to do that. And it's something that we've become disconnected from. It, it hasn't been taught to people as a value. And so I think bringing that back and that emphasizing that is very powerful for people. I agree. Now, one of the other components of intuitive eating that I really like, and yet it might teeter on to our next part of this discussion, which is some of the potential blind sides and that is this idea of unconditional permission to eat when I first heard this statement I will say I felt really drawn to it I really believe in the idea of letting go of good or bad foods of removing the moral compass from foods and and not having this like ever long list in our head of I can eat this and I can't eat that that is something I believe very strongly in kind of going back to what you were saying Chris like when we think about foods we can't have we tend to want them more. So if we can get rid of that, it creates this neutral playing ground when it comes to food. That being said, there's kind of a flip side to it, right? And so let's start talking about some of the the blind sides, some of the potential language that would be misleading when it comes to intuitive eating. So Erica, what's your take on this idea of unconditional permission to eat? I think it's a powerful concept. I think it has an, a, lot, a lot of allure for people. And I think it probably is something, if a person has had an eating disorder or they've been dieting their whole lives, I think, lives, I think it is something that they need to try out for a while. Because I think if, as you get rid of these forbidden foods, you're probably going to really be eating a lot of things that you haven't been able to eat before. And you should, probably should give yourself unconditional permission because yeah. that's like an exploratory part of the work right Mm -hmm. however what if you stay there forever now in the book the theory is that you will start to get this biofeedback and you will notice if things don't feel very good physically you will start to not eat so much of them you will regulate your own hunger um, for some of these foods 
Uh, but I think the research shows that when people really are following that principle of unconditional permission to eat, they're eating a lot of what we would call, I guess, am I allowed to say this, junk food? Yes. You know, like uh, low caloric or high caloric foods, low nutritional density kinds mm-hmm. of foods, a lot of those. Mm-hmm. And so that one, that particular concept of unconditional permission to eat, I have a love-hate relationship yeah. with that myself. Chris, what do you I don't know, what do you want to chime in here? Yeah, I think that was really well said. I mean, on the positive side, to, to give it its due, I think it's right that if you're going to focus on allowing yourself to eat the foods that you want, you don't want to be holding on to a little bit of guilt in your mind or saying, well, if I eat this food now, I'll have to make up for it later. We really want to go ahead and embrace it and do it well to get the kind of liberating benefits Mm -hmm. of that approach. But as Erica said, yeah, it raises the question, how long will that happen um, and go on for? Will will it eventually kind of regulate itself as the authors of and the creators of intuitive eating do strongly say? That's for me a little bit uncertain and probably depends on how willing one is to try to really tune into those hunger and satiety clues. And I think it's, that's an easy thing to say, but as you Mm -hmm. pointed out, we're conditioned not to do that. And that might not be an easy thing for a lot of people to actually read those signals and honor them. Yeah. Well, now we're talking about a pendulum swing, right? Where we go from maybe, maybe a full blown eating disorder, or maybe just some diet, heavy diet rules and restriction or weight cycling. Now we swing to this unconditional permission to eat. And now we're, we're swinging back to our, it it feels very much like a roller coaster to go on. And I love the question of like, how do we know when it is time to maybe bring some more intentionality? And this is a lot of the work I do with my clients is they've done the intuitive eating work. They've kind of reconnected with biofeedback and it's not so much that their body's telling them it's time to make a change with your nutrition it's their brain tells them Mm. it's time to make a change with your nutrition and I know this was definitely my experience um I've told this on the podcast before but after I had my first son I was very much eating intuitively with very little intention at that point in my life and it had worked I mean I was in my 20s at that point but after I had my first son and started going into my 30s and not sleeping it, all of a sudden I thought I need to have more intentionality because the way I'm taking care of my body is not providing me with the energy to be the kind of mom, employee, wife that I want to be. And so I had to pull in some intentionality. But what was funny is I almost felt guilty for now wanting a salad for lunch and wanting to eat, dare I say it, healthier. Right? Oh, wow, what a contradiction. I know, right? <laughs> right? And by the way, I want to throw out there that there – Within the book itself on intuitive eating, the manual for it, the workbook, there's a contradiction because they say there's unconditional permission to eat, right? That's introduced early on, and it is fabulous, I think, as a season, but then they contradict it because later they talk about respecting your satiety. So really, if you're doing intuitive eating well, you are not eating, uh, you don't have unconditional permission. You have permission to eat up until you're full or Mm -hmm. satisfied, Mm -hmm. and so I really think they could have done a better job maybe of kind of like stressing that, but I realize it gets kind of messy, right? Because then all of a sudden if you're putting a, they didn't want any rules, right? They wanted it to all come from the person. Well, how do you do that? You have to be a person that is really mindful of what's going on in your own body. And there are a lot of reasons people aren't doing that or cannot do that during time. They're sleep deprived, as you said, because they're taking care of someone else. Um, so we're not always going to do this perfectly. Mm-hmm. 
It's a really great point. I mean, the unconditional permission to eat is kind of the marketing slogan for the front of the book. It, it promises a lot. But as you kind of get into the weeds, as Erica pointed out, we are also told that a core principle is always honor, or for the most part, honor feelings of satiety, right? And if we're honest, how many of us are doing that? How often do we override that? So I think that's actually a really big ask to stop when you're sort of full and not continue eating past that. And another thing, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, it advises against eating for emotional purposes. And I don't know about you, that's another common way in which people tend to eat. So that's also a huge challenge to this approach. Yeah, and hitting on what you what you said about satiety, Chris, just reminded me, there's many reasons we don't stop and honor our satiety. One, we're busy. We're pre. I mean, how many? I eat lunch at my desk answering emails. You know, I'm not sitting there going, "Am I full?" <laughs> I am focused on the emails that I'm writing. And then two, oftentimes when we are coming from a background of maybe chaotic eating, under eating, or overeating, it actually throws off the hormone leptin, which is our satiety hormone. And so there's something called leptin resistance that can happen when our body fat is on like either end of the spectrum, either above what is genetically comfortable for us or below what is genetically comfortable. And that leptin resistance means our brain is not necessarily getting the full message or the fullness message. That's true. And to further complicate things, even if somebody's not having kind of metabolic issues that you're talking about, maybe they are genetically where their body's comfortable weight-wise, but if they're having a really bad day, right, Right. or a bad (laughs) season, um, we know that people do not regulate their own hunger very well, listen to it very well, and they're going to overeat if they're really emotional. Which brings in that idea of like comfort food, right? We all know what that is. Um, And so it is very common for people to eat when they're emotional. And we're just not going to get rid of that completely. So what do we do with that? Yeah. Yeah. I just, there was a statistic I read in a study a couple weeks ago, and it was 48% of the population overeats when they're stressed and 36% undereats when they're stressed. So there's a huge chunk of us that just does, we don't regulate our hunger and satiety hormones when we're stressed. And I always laugh, like, how many of us are not stressed? I mean, it's really a part of our regular rhythm at some point during our year. It's just part of being human. We experience stress. Right. And so another thing that they don't really, I guess they go into this a little bit, mindfulness, right? To, to, To have good intuitive eating behaviors, you have to also have good mindful eating behaviors, meaning you're sitting down to eat just with the food. You're really in tune with the food. You're really listening to your body. You're not watching TV. You're not answering emails. And so again, in, in our busy world, that's it's, it's challenging. And I would add to that, you also need good uh, emotion regulation skills because one of the tenets of intuitive eating is not to eat if really the, the, the driver is primarily an emotion. But how many of us have been taught how to sit with a very difficult emotion and really kind of work through that? That requires kind of its own path. Yeah. So I, it's been a while since I picked up the book. Is Do they specifically say do not eat for emotion? Yeah. I mean, they acknowledge that, hey, we're human. So sometimes you want comfort food. Don't beat yourself up for it. But they do say as a, you know, as a general practice, you are wanting to eat due to physical hunger, not to try to kind of uh, regulate an emotion as a, as a, on a consistent basis. That's interesting. So I love Dr. Ellen Satter's approach to this. She calls it effective emotional eating where she actually gives permission to eat emotionally and use it as a self-regulating tool because I mean, 
the studies show that when we eat foods that are high in fat, sugar, or salt, it actually numbs us out. It is like having alcohol or some sort of drug. Like it's, it has yes. a numbing effect. It works. But what Ellen Satter says that I love is she's like, if you do this, one, like identify what your emotion is. So you got to name your emotion before you actually start eating. So we're doing it, like you said, Erica, from a mindful perspective. And then two, like recognize this is not going to solve any of my problems. Eating this food, like eating ice cream on a Thursday night is not going to solve me feeling, you know, stressed out from work, but it might make me feel better momentarily. And so just being really present, mindful, and then eating from an empowered stance can be a self-coping strategy. But one of the things they've found is that when you do it like that, you actually eat less. It, It doesn't turn into a binge because you got the mindfulness element. That makes sense. And that actually is work that Janine Roth has been oh, doing really? for the longest time. Yeah, she would say you can't be compulsive and self-aware at the same time. Mm. So if you can get yourself into that self-awareness space to name your emotion, even if you give yourself permission to get some comfort from you know, cake, whatever it is, mm-hmm. um, you're, you're going to be better able to regulate your behavior mm-hmm. um, sooner than if you're not able to do that. Which kind of brings us to that um, point of that you always like to make that if you don't have permission to eat, you can't make an empowered decision, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So there is permission, but there also has to be self-awareness um, and mindfulness, right? Yeah. And it, so it's it's doing a lot, and and people sometimes need help with these pieces, right? There are a lot of reasons why people sometimes are really struggling with this. If they have PTSD, I knew somebody that he had such bad PTSD, he would dissociate. Mm. So you can't really be self-aware and in a dissociative state, and he would binge eat when Mm -hmm. he was in those states. And so we had a lot of work to do to heal a lot of the trauma before he could begin any of this stuff with food, right? Right. Well, you bring up a really good point, and I love what you said, like the emotional regulation piece is so crucial because you've got people who have been through really hard things that are that's coming to the literal and figurative table here and then you've also got just people with regular everyday stressors that have that like low grade chronic stress in their body and that's hard to navigate as well so what I'm hearing you say Chris is like if we don't pull in the emotional regulation piece and then try to just eat intuitively we're really setting ourselves up Yeah, exactly. And I think we should give ourselves permission, as both of you have pointed out, to occasionally use food to help us regulate emotions. I I don't think that's problematic as one strategy among many. Uh, The problem comes if that's kind of our only go-to strategy, right? Then we're probably going to eat in an unhealthy way, ultimately. But if we have that and we have other things, then we're well equipped. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so good. That's a really good point. I'm so relieved to hear you guys say this. Um, especially being a highly emotional person. I've done a lot of work on emotional regulation and learning to pull more tools into my toolbox. So obviously eating ice cream is not my only coping tool, but you know, I allow myself that permission if I decide that that's the one I want to pull out. (laughs) But all in all, that emotional regulation is so very important. And I think it's important to say here that intuitive eating while it has its powerful components, like there has to be a solid base we start on. We have to be willing to do some of the emotional regulation work. We have to be able to physiologically reset some of our hunger and satiety hormones. I mean, that's why one of the first things I do when I work with clients and in my program is we just start eating every two to four hours. Like we don't have a time schedule, but we just start eating on a rhythm to regulate some of those hormones before we even tap in. 
to the hunger and satiety hormones. So I'm really relieved to hear this. I think, you know, this reminds me, Erica, of some of the discussion you and I have had about even the name intuitive eating. And so I'd love for you to unpack the name and, and just, yeah, your stance on what the title is and how that might be misleading in and of itself. Okay, sure. So I'll start with what is intuitive eating. I think a lot of your listeners do probably know this concept, um, but it is not a diet plan or anything like that. It is an approach to eating in which you really, the primary driver is tapping into your own body's hunger and satiety cues. There's a component of giving yourself unconditional permission to eat. Um, No food is is off limits. Um, And really, you're just learning to appreciate yourself as you are. There's no external rules or anything like that. Here's one of the problems that I had as I started really delving more into the concept and reading the book and paying attention. The term intuitive itself, if you look up the actual definition of it, it is a knowing without conscious reasoning. So if you take away conscious reasoning, you're also looking very closely at the definition of impulsivity. So it's kind of like this gut instinct to eat what you want when you want, which sometimes is going to really serve us well. But, it, but if there's nothing else there, there's no knowledge, there's no conscious reasoning, gee, how could that maybe get us into trouble sometimes? To me, to give the intuitive eating its due, um, it's important to point out um, the liberating aspect of turning away from um, external authorities to guide your eating. And here I'm imagining someone for whom intuitive eating would really appeal, someone who's been doing the diet culture thing for many years without success, locked into a cycle of guilt and shame and constant restriction interspersed with overindulgence and that whole roller coaster ride. And to tell that person, hey, you can turn away from all of those external sources and, and rules and diet books and you can just tune in to your kind of your inner compass to guide you as to what to eat, when to eat, how to eat. That is a pretty appealing message, I imagine, for many. And I do think there is a lot of evidence that it helps people become regulated in their eating behavior, right? Mm-hmm. These, these, these ups and downs and the diet cycling, the weight cycling, excuse me, can really kind of come to an end and it can really reduce a lot of obsessiveness about food. And that there's really definitely a need and a place for that, right? Yeah, I think it kind of brings us to this point of the religiosity we've created around food. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, and I think here it's worth taking a step back and looking at some of those cultural elements um, out of which intuitive eating emerges. And uh, we can look, for example, at Christianity, which is kind of a cultural reference point for many, whether they identify as Christian or, or not in the Western world. And one of the founding stories of that is um, the Garden of Eden. And we can remember there, there was kind of this act of transgressive eating uh, at the heart of that, mm-hmm. right? Taking of the fruit. Um, from a tree that was forbidden. And so, you know, right there, food is sort of linked with um, guilt, with power, control, and external authority. And, uh, and I think even if um, one doesn't identify as Christian, that association has remained very strong in our culture, where we feel guilty for wanting the things we want, for indulging, for even enjoying food. And we kind of beat ourselves up about that if we feel we aren't following whatever the prescribed virtues are in terms of food rules. Yeah, well, and I see that even swinging, the pendulum swinging now with the anti-diet movement, almost to where 
we've moved guilt and shame around food to we've moved it away from the good or bad food list like like you said that was originally embedded in our culture maybe even all the way down to the roots of the adam and eve story and now we're seeing it in this idea of like if we don't eat intuitively and you're following a diet now you should feel guilty for following a diet but bottom line we have remained in the space where we have made food a religion that's true and i think it speaks to this fear we have at a fundamental maybe primal level we're afraid of our own appetites um, we know sometimes we can get carried away with them, and I, I think people often do struggle to know how to regulate them, but as Chris pointed out so beautifully, there's definitely cultural elements there too. And as people, it's interesting because as people kind of, our culture has shifted away from traditional religions, then you get these aspects still showing up about, you know, what's good and bad, what's what's moral, what's evil, in different ways, like the clean eating movement, yeah. right? Which was this movement obsessed with the purity of food, whereas maybe in a religious sense, purity would be more about sexual desires and those appetites. Then it became about, like, what your food's got to be as natural and free from any kind of additives as possible. And, and so that's all kind of interesting, too, right, how it fits together. Yeah. And I think one cool link there is that as we've shifted to looking at food almost as a religion in and of itself, we're striving for purity, for redemption, for virtue, for almost some of those things that we might have previously associated with a spiritual path. And that is putting a lot of a lot of pressure right on, on what we eat and how we eat. Yeah, so good. People are looking for salvation more from their food than they are in a house of worship, right? No, no, it's so true. And we see that on like the disordered eating end where we become obsessed with food. We're looking for food to save us and thinking that's our our control, primary control mechanism. But I, I do think in some ways eating intuitively has like been just repackaged in some ways to where that has become also a religion and something I have to do right. And if I don't, if it, this doesn't save me, what will? And you know, this is one of the things, so in my model, we do a values-based approach. So we look at like what someone values and create health definitions and goals based on those values. And that really lays the platform for them. And what I love about this is that it does allow us to look at food with a more neutral, less religious lens. And if someone, so a lot of the listeners here are faith-based, and one of the things I love to talk about is how in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about whatever we eat and drink, do it for the glory of God. And I think where the guilt and shame has been surrounded, has surrounded food, if we look at it through this new lens of faith and whatever we decide to do with food, like do it for the glory of God, that can look so many different ways. Like there's no right or wrong there. It's actually situational. And you've got to look at the whole picture, not just like, should I eat the donut or not eat the donut? It's like, who are you eating the donut with? Why are you eating the donut? You know, what kind of glory can you give to God in this circumstance by eating the donut? You bring up a good point about the context in which we're eating, right? Um, I've sometimes in my work with clients, you know, they've, they've kind of stumbled upon this idea of, you know, having a second burrito because I'm hanging out with my friends, you know, down by the barbershop seems really different than I'm eating a bunch of burritos by myself because I'm really sad and I don't have, any, you know, the tools to regulate myself. And so I think there is also some evidence that when we eat um, for pleasure, in a healthy kind of context, it's social, it's part of what we're, we're going to do, that probably has a different effect and impact on us than when we're eating out of a stress reaction. So that's kind of an interesting thing too. Mm -hmm. It's like, am I respecting myself and am I engaging with others in a way that this feels really good or am I doing something that feels self-destructive? Mm -hmm. I think that's a, a really brilliant point. 
I feel that today we so often have divorced food from community, from something that can bring us together. And you mentioned the Christian context. I mean, there's so many references to gatherings. I mean, culminating in the Last Supper, right, where food is this connecting force between people. And if we are thinking about food as what's the right thing to eat, what's the wrong thing to eat from an individual standpoint, we really miss that nurturing community element, which, as Erica said, eating food in that context might have a totally different health value. Absolutely. One of my favorite images that comes to mind is actually shared with me by my mentor, Tammy Beasley. She's an incredible dietitian in our field, but she would show this image of a table with a plate and a like beautiful meal, but one hand. And then she has another picture where it's tons of food, it's chaos, it's lots of hands, different sizes, and it's like a top-down view of each of these images of a table. And she asks the audience, like, I want you to listen to these pictures. What do you hear? And what she does is she creates this awareness that food isn't just, like sitting down at a table is not just about the salad we're eating or the pizza we're eating. It's about the environment and the community. And I think this is one element that I don't think is included necessarily in intuitive eating and why I like the more empowered eating approach because you're so right. Community and connection is so important with nutrition. And actually in, um, I want to say it's Japan and Australia, in their government guidelines, they encourage the value of eating for connection in their standards, just like we have, you know, eat so many fruits and veggies in a day. There's another thing I wanted to break down, which is this idea of privilege. So uh, the diet culture, which we've all been trying to eschew, really kind of promotes this thin ideal, right? And the, the intuitive eating workbook really talks about trying to get rid of, throw out this um, approval of the thin ideal. However, when you do a Google search of providers that really work in intuitive eating, dietitians, maybe, and therapists, psychotherapists as well, what I found, and I really kind of made me chuckle, a lot of pictures of attractive young women mostly, there are some men in this field doing this work, right? But a lot of women, they're thin, they have this thin privilege, and they are often eating some kind of big indulgent dessert as their primary picture promoting their work. So when you look at that marketing, what is it really saying? Chris, what does it say to you? Yeah, I mean, it, it is it is a little bit comical because, of course, on paper, if we look at the sort of tenets of intuitive eating, it's very clear, like, you really need to give up any attachment to an external body image or ideal, and we're working towards acceptance, right? So if we're marketing it in a different way, it might be a little bit of a double, double standard and implying that you don't have to do that work of, of acceptance, which is a really hard piece of this, I think, for many. Okay, friend, that is a wrap for today. We are going to pick up this conversation right where we left off next Monday, so be sure you tune in. Until then, if you have any thoughts or inquiries or additions to this, I would love to hear from you. You can always submit questions or feedback over on my website, justbrownrd.com, or snag a discovery call with me, and I would love to dive into how we might be able to chat more about this topic Also wanted to let you know that in the show notes, you will find links to some of the resources that Dr. Castleberry and Christopher provide to the community. They are an incredible resource, so be sure you check out their YouTube channel, Mental Health Break. All right, we will see you right back here next Monday. Until then, cheers and happy eating.
Gosh, I'm so glad you joined me today. If today encouraged you, would you take a minute and encourage me by leaving a review for the show? I read every single one of these reviews and your words, they mean so much to me. This podcast is here to support you weekly, but it only scratches the surface. To learn more on how you can become an empowered eater, snag my free workshop, how to eat intuitively and hit your goals without obsessing over food at jessbrownrd.com. Don't forget to join me right here next Monday where I cannot wait to fuel your awesome. Cheers, my sweet friend, and happy eating.